0: Tom, I think you give me way more credit than I deserve. 45 minutes, really? <laughs> Are you sure about that? <clears throat> okay, well that's good. Today we're going to continue a series on grace from what Pastor Trevor has started. Today we're going to talk about David. He's a young man that few paid much attention to. He was the youngest in his family, which is a large family. His uh, older brothers looked down on him, both figuratively and literally, because he was kind of a short guy. Uh, He had kind of a second-rate job. He um, uh, eventually grew up and found himself to be employed in the area of social work. Worked for a very important man, and he was trying to help this man with his flaming anger management issues. David was a help for a while, but eventually all of his techniques started to fail, And his boss got so angry with him, he tried to kill him. David was able to make a run for it, and he went into hiding. However, his boss was so angry, he actually hired mercenaries to help him hunt David down to try and kill him. David was smart. He always stayed one step ahead, and uh, he didn't have to worry that way. In time, his boss was actually killed, and David was able to come out from hiding. When David came out from hiding... Uh, He actually took over the boss's position, and he was a much better boss than the previous man. Now, for all of you Sunday school graduates out there, you probably already know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about King David, and uh, probably didn't disguise that all that well. Today we're going to talk about grace from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, and it may seem like a little bit of an uncommon passage to be studying grace on. But I'm going to tell you up front, if you take the Bible and you wring it out, you're going to find grace dripping off of every single page. And you're going to find that in this passage as well. So, for those of you who don't know, this particular passage is an actual turning point in the Old Testament. It doesn't get the same amount of play that maybe... Um, the Psalms do, because we oftentimes find ourselves in the Psalms. We understand them because there's so much emotion there. We can see ourselves in there when David is talking the way he does oftentimes. Also doesn't get as much play as some of the famous stories of the Old Testament, Noah and Jonah and the crossing of the Red Sea, those things that we talk about, and we love those particular stories. But because this passage is such a huge passage, it affects every area of scripture. We have to kind of do a little bit more digging. And I'll be honest with you, in, uh, in preacher speak, that means I have to rein myself in. Because there's so many different directions I could go with this. And I have to make sure I stay on topic for this one. This is the chapter where we learn of the Davidic covenant, or God's covenant with David. Now, to understand the covenant, Pastor Trevor went over this a couple weeks ago, just a little bit about what a covenant is. But what I want you to do is think of a covenant as a promise on steroids. Okay? Uh, It is not like a contract. Contract says, I will do this, and then you will do this for me. So you go in and you tell Panora Fiber, I will pay you money. I promise not to do anything inappropriate with the internet access that you're going to give me. And you're going to give me internet access at speeds where I can binge watch Netflix, okay? That is a contract. I have responsibilities, you have responsibilities. A covenant is different. A person in a covenant says, I am going to do this for you. And I'm gonna do that for you. And I'm gonna do this other thing for you. Period. No caveats, no addendums, no quid pro quo, no strings attached whatsoever. This is what I promise to do for you. And that is why God is the one who makes covenants with us, because he's actually the one capable of saying, here's what I promise to do for you, no strings attached. He is not sitting there thinking, well, you know, if they screw this thing up, how can I get out of this? He doesn't think that way. He simply says, I am making you this promise. Now, this part does not relate directly to our sermon topic but I'm finding a spot where I can drop a little extra theological knowledge on y'all. So here it comes, okay? There are five major covenants in the Old Testament. There's a few more, but there's five major ones. I'm going to step off over this way. There is the Noetic covenant or the covenant with Noah. God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth with water ever again. There's the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, I am going to make you into a great nation, and you will not be able to count all the ancestors or the descendants that you will have. There's the Mosaic covenant, the law. Okay, that's as simple as you can sum it up. There's the Davidic covenant. It says, I'm going to give you a great descendant. We won't go into all the details, otherwise, I'll have no sermon left. then there's the new covenant. It says, I'm going to write my laws on your hearts and you are going to know me in a way that you've never known me before. Now, here you go. This part's participatory, so you've got to answer me here. Of these five covenants, which one does man actually play much of a role in? The Mosaic covenant, the law. We have to obey the law, right? We have to do something in there. Now, of these five covenants, which one is screwed up? The law, the Mosaic Covenant, (laughs) because we had a hand in it, right? Uh, If you're thinking, I never lived under the Mosaic Covenant, I don't know what you're talking about. I promise you, you would have not done any better had you lived back then, okay? Now, out of these five covenants, which one is no longer in effect? It's the same one. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. the law. It's the law. The law is no longer in effect because God did something particularly amazing with the covenants. Under that one, because we mess it up so bad, God says, you know what? I am going to send my son who is going to fulfill this covenant. He is going to fulfill the law because you guys messed this up. Humanity is supposed to keep the law. And so I'm going to send Jesus and he's going to fulfill it because he's going to keep it when he comes. Okay. Now back to your regular scheduled sermon. Grace for David, this is your first one. This is the story of First Chronicles chapter 17. And it's not terribly difficult to understand. It's a story and pretty much a straightforward story all about salvation history. That's why it's so important. First Chronicles chapter 17 verses 1 and 2. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar While the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent, Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it because God is with you. Now, David's desire is to build God a permanent home. David's looking around his house and he thinks, You know what? How can I possibly live here in this wonderful, amazing palace of mine when God's ark is in a tent? A movable, simple, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad tent. What David is really thinking is actually commonplace for the people of that time, for kings of that time. They actually wanted to build something beautiful, something amazing to honor the king or to honor their god that they thought helped put them into power. Now, Nathan the prophet comes along. He is most famous for being the one to confront David when David had his little thing with Bathsheba on the side. And what Nathan tells him, and we'll see this in the very next verse, Nathan says, hey, go do what you think God wants you to do. The very next verse, verse 3, we find out that Nathan was not quite as in tune with God as he thought. He was kind of stepping ahead of God. God says, no, no, this is what I want David to know. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I find that a little bit on the comforting side, what Nathan did here. Because Nathan stepped out ahead of God. He said, you can go ahead and do this thing. And then God says, no, that's not the thing I want done. And I don't know about you, but there's times in life where I've stepped ahead of God. I've tried to move where God said, no, that's not where I want you to go. I want you to go over here. And when I read that, that a prophet in the Bible stepped out in advance of where God wanted him to go, I feel like I probably shouldn't beat myself up that much. Because I'm seeing myself in Scripture there that I step out a little too far sometimes. And God has to pull me back in. Got of course, correct. you got to change direction when God tells you to. But maybe we don't have to beat ourselves up quite as badly. So... Nathan's vision that God gives him, starting with verse 4. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build uh, build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought uh, Israel out of Egypt to this day. I've moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites... Did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell David, my servant, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not be able to oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And I have done, or and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all of your enemies." I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom forever. He is the one who will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. David obviously was not supposed to be the one who was going to build uh, a house for God. The reason is not actually given here in 1 Chronicles 17. It's given a couple of chapters later. 1 Chronicles 22 verse 8. God says, but this is the word of the Lord came to me you have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on earth in my sight. So David was a warrior. We know that he fought many battles. And God says, you have spilled too much blood. And so you cannot be the one to build me the house. Now we don't understand God didn't qualify and say, this is why somebody who does that can't build my house. He just simply said, this is the reason why you cannot build me a house. Then God lists some other reasons that he is not interested in a house. He says, you know what? I've never had a permanent home. He never commanded anyone to build him a house. And from that, I take the idea of the humility of God, in a sense. God is not like other gods who try and demand things from their people and say, build me a house so that everybody will know that I'm great. What God does, the way God wants everybody to know that he is great is by what he does, not where he lives. Just that simple. God reminds David where he comes from and how he got to where he was. God took him from the pasture and appointed him leader. God has been with them everywhere, disposing of David's enemies. And then God starts with a word play, verses 10 and 11. He says, I'm going to build you a house. You're wanting to build me one? No, No, I'm going to build you one. And the king was not allowed to build this house for God, an actual structure of cedar, a physical thing that you can see. But the king of kings is going to build a house for David. He is going to build him a house of descendants that are going to go on and on and on. So it's a bit of a dual statement because Solomon obviously fits in there just a little bit. Solomon's actually going to build the physical temple for God. However, the uh, forever nature of this eventual building that God is going to build for him is pointing at nobody else but Jesus. No other son of David was capable of instituting a kingdom forever. Only Jesus Christ could establish the dynasty of David forever. But more than that, this son of David would be greater than David himself. In part because he establishes the throne forever, but in part because this son of David is the son of God. God says that he will never remove his steadfast love from him. And just a quick word on that. In Hebrew, the word love is hased, it is the one way, unfailing love of God. Hased is the Old Testament word that is most closely associated with the idea of grace or the favor of God. Now, it brings up a question. If we have Jesus in view here, and God says, I will never remove my love from Jesus, how would that even be possible? Jesus is God. God is not going to remove his love from himself. It brings you into one of those weird little things with the Trinity. The reality is it's just simply not possible it doesn't happen. God is never going to be able to remove his love from his son because his son is him and in the Trinity. So uh, this son of David is also going to be over God's house and his kingdom. The same house that God said he's going to build for David. Now, after Nathan reports all of this to David, we hear David's response, verses 16 through 27. Then King David went in, sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of this house, of my house, of your servant. You have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, O Lord. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself? and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people Israel, your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promise, so that it will be established, and that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty, the God over Israel is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him so that your servant has found courage to pray to you. O Lord, you are God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Lord, have blessed it, and it will be blessed forever. Long little section, but this is David's response. He starts out immediately. Who am I, Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? In other words, this is what David's really saying. Yes, Lord, I am a little shepherd boy. I am the youngest and smallest of my family. I came from nothing, and you have brought me this far. You have been with me as my enemies have chased me. You removed my enemies from me. You have brought me to the highest position in the land, the throne, for me to rule your people. Do you ever think you could pack that much into one sentence? David continues, As if this were not enough, you have spoken about the future of your house of your servant. Again, in other words, God, you have given me so much already. You've given me the throne. You've given me my family. You've given me a great name in the land. And you've given me my life. And now you're going to talk about the future of the kingdom and make promises that you are making to me? I am absolutely in awe, God. But what I find most interesting uh, intriguing maybe in uh, David's prayer begins in verse 20. It says, there is no one like you, O Lord, and there is no God but you. As we have heard with our own ears after feeling the, f- or excuse me, after we've heard you with your own ears. So here's David and he is feeling the full weight of what God has done for him. And David turns uh, with this. He sees all the things that God has done. He sees all of this and he looks and he goes, you know what? I'm going to praise God. That's what I'm going to do. All of this grace, all of these things that he's seen, what God has done in his life, turns him toward praise. And when we see and feel the weight of what God has done in our lives, it should turn us toward praise. When we see and understand the cross and understand what God has done for us on the cross through Jesus Christ, that should do nothing else but lead us to praise, just like David. David declares, there is no God like you. And there is no God but you. God is so awesome because he set out to redeem Israel for himself. And they are his forever. And David responds with all of that to give nothing but praise toward God. Then David asks for God to confirm what he has said by making the promises come about and establishing his house forever. But the reason that David asks this is huge, so I don't want you to miss this. Verse 24 so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty, the God over Israel, is is Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Did you see it? The whole reason why David is um, asking for these things, the reason why he says this is such a huge thing, says, I want this to be so that your name will be great forever. It's not about me. It's about you. It's not even about this line that you are going to provide for me, this future uh, line of descendants that is going to go on forever. It is about God's glory and what God has done. So David finishes his prayer saying that God has blessed David's house and so it's going to be blessed forever. And again, David's unquestioning faith in God. When God blesses, it is a blessing for all time. His word secures our hope for future blessings. In other words, it's all back to the idea of covenant. God promises it, and it will be done. So, that is grace for David. I go on to the grace of God. Because I'm sure there's probably a few of you out there itching to raise your hand and say, excuse me, Keith, I heard that this was supposed to be a sermon on grace. And so far, I haven't heard a whole lot of grace out of these words. It really only mentions it that one time. And that one word for grace is actually talking about God's love for his son, Jesus. So where's the grace? To that, I will tell you this whole chapter also doesn't use the word covenant. But it is a covenant with David. And I'll give you one verse just to prove that this is what this is. Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4, and verse 34. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. So while, chapter, uh, while the chapter only uses the Old Testament word for grace once, And it's referring to God's son, him loving God's son. If you remember at the beginning, I said, if you take the Bible and you wring it out, you're going to find grace on every single page. So let's do this. Where do we see grace? Verse six, God could have been the kind of God that demanded things like other nations, gods. The one that said, hey, you must do this for me. You must build me a house. And yet he didn't do that. He could have subjected them because of his ego, yet God never made those demands. It's, um, it's a bit laughable sometimes when I hear people say that God has an ego and that's why, you know, the Bible is the way it is or whatever. God does demand worship. He does say that he, because of his nature, he is absolutely worthy of our worship 100%, but he is not like these other gods around them. He says, I never demanded a temple. Verse 7, God says to David, I took you from the pasture and I made you king. That's grace. Undeserved, David never done nothing for it. Grace. Verse 8, I was with you wherever you went and I cut off your enemies. Grace. God's favor on David, even though David did nothing to deserve it. Verses 9 and 10. God made a place for Israel and others will not oppress them like they once did. God chose Israel because, to become the greatest nation. They were not even a nation when God chose them. They were a man. Israel is not even in existence. So how in the world could they possibly do anything to deserve grace? It was just simply God's grace that he was giving. Verses 10 through 14. God's going to build a house for David that will last forever. What did David ever do to deserve this kindness? What did David do to deserve an everlasting kingdom and have a descendant who's going to sit on the throne forever? Answer? Nothing. He did nothing. Grace is simply the favor of God that is not earned. Then you get to David's recognition of God's grace in that beautiful, wonderful, and amazing prayer. Who am I that you have brought me this far? Sad thing nowadays, I think there's far too many of us that would never be able to make that statement because too often we expect God to say how high when we say jump. We ask for something and God better do it. If he doesn't, then we're going to doubt whether he's even there. If somehow our life turns into a mess, we blame God rather than recognizing that we live in a world full of sin, or even worse, we recognize the fact that maybe it's our sin that caused the mess and it's not really God's fault. David continues, Who am I? that you have brought me this far. David's looking at both his past and his future and he sees the grace of God has completely covered his life and he can't help to be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Now, grace for David, grace of God. Now we've got the grace of or for Jonathan. 1700s there was a man named Jonathan. He was raised by his mother and his father uh, had to travel a lot for work. His, uh, his mom raised him on the scriptures, on the great hymns of the faith back in his day. <clears throat> As a result, young Jonathan was, uh, or excuse me, his mom passed away when he was 11 years old. As a result, he was uh, sent to go live with his dad, even though his dad traveled a lot for work. Dad's job put Jonathan around some rather uh, rough-and-tumble individuals, Some characters that uh, he would remain around for his formative years. Jonathan struggled between his religious upbringing and the lifestyle of these uh, unsavory characters that were along with his dad. Sadly, Jonathan ditched his upbringing and fully embraced uh, those the lifestyle of those men. He wound up in the navy at a young age, and he absolutely hated the navy. Uh, He eventually ran away. He was tracked down, he was caught, he was flogged, and he was put back into the Navy. And yet he escaped a second time. He did return to the sea. Uh, He went on a different vessel, not back in the Navy. But if you think his Navy years were hard, where he was headed was a whole new nightmare. If you thought that the men that he was raised with, the Navy sailors, were rough, the people, the sailors on this particular ship, took depravity to a whole new level. It was actually a slave ship. One of the captains that he served under reportedly said this about him. He was the most vile man I had ever met. I don't know if you've met some rough customers, but that could be saying an awful lot. Uh, He also said he would make up words just to embarrass and harass you. He turned into a pretty nasty guy. Around 1748, there was a violent storm that kicked up while he was on his ship. And in the very place that he had been standing just moments before, another sailor got swept off the ship. Jonathan tied himself to the ship itself and waited for the storm to pass for the next 11 hours he was absolutely certain that he was going to die. He survived, and it sparked something in him spiritually. He remained in the slave trade for six more years, during which time he took to reading the Bible and studying theology. All the time, he is being slowly drawn further and further out of that lifestyle until uh, he eventually became an ordained minister in the Church of England. Now, he was known that before giving a sermon, he would oftentimes write a new hymn that would go along with what he was going to be speaking about. It was around Christmas time, and his study of and his reflection on these particular words, that this particular passage in First Chronicles 17 uh, has really affected Jonathan's life. It really changed him around in a significant way, and he is the one who wrote one of the most Uh, popular, well-known Christian songs ever. It was the words of David in verse 16 that rang out in his heart in particular. He said, who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me this far? He looked back and he saw his life and he realized the rough lifestyle that he had led, all the vile behavior that he had given out, and all of his running was actually running from God. And he looked back on those days, the days that he'd been on the slave ships, and he realized how much he had devalued human life, how he was to blame for so many Africans, people, men, women, children, to be sold into slavery, ripped from their homes, from all they knew, brutally mistreated, and some of them killed. He took stock of his life, and how God had reached out to him with that initial storm. And he, like David, thought to himself, who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me this far? Some of you may have guessed the identity of Jonathan by now. He's more commonly known as John Newton, and he has written perhaps the most famous song in all of Christianity. If you know what what song I'm talking about, you can say it with me. Ready? Ready? Faith's Love and expe- Review and Expectation. That was the original name of the song. Faith's Review and Expectation. Uh, personally, I'm glad that they changed the title of the song to Amazing Grace. Uh, I have to admit, or excuse me, uh, First Chronicles 17, verses 16 and 17. King David went and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if it were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of your, the house of your servant, you have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men, O Lord God. I want you to think about those words. I want you to think about the life of David. I want you to think a lot about the life of Jonathan Newton. As we sing... Amazing grace. What an absolute beautiful way to remember Scripture. What an absolute beautiful way to put your testimony out there so people know and understand what God has truly done for you. Who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me this far? So we've seen the grace for David. We've seen the grace of God, the grace for Jonathan. There's grace for us. And I have to ask, Do we have that kind of humility? A humility that recognizes our place before God and that our life really is not our own. It belongs to God. Here's the harder question Do you have that kind of humility? Because it's easy to ask the big corporate question Do we all have that kind of humility? It's harder to ask that specific question of ourselves Do I have that kind of humility? to be able to sit before God and say, who am I, O Lord? And this might be the hardest part of the whole message. As you look back on your life, what is your, you have brought me this far. What obstacles has God helped you overcome? What sins has God helped you move beyond? How have you fought against God? And in hindsight, you realize God was gently, or maybe not so gently, trying to nudge you back where you needed to be? How have you submitted to God and seen him work through you? How do you see God's grace bringing you along throughout life? Meditation is a lost art. Learning how to quiet the mind and still the heart to hear the voice of God, in particular in our society today, is not a simple task. It was in looking at his life through the lens of this passage that John Newton could see God's amazing grace so clearly. In fact, you see it in the verses as well. It says that King David went in and sat before the Lord. That's something we need to learn how to do is to meditate, to go sit before the Lord. So I'm going to urge you, to find some quiet time away from everything that may be pulling for your attention and meditate on God's amazing grace. I thought about, let's have just a couple of minutes at the end and have everybody meditate on that. But I'm going to tell you this, there's a whole lot to the amazing grace of God. And when you really start thinking about it in your own life, it's going to take way more than two or three minutes at the end of a service. At least I sure hope so. So, reading David's words one more time. King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if it were not enough in your sight, O Lord, you have spoken about the future of this house and your servant. You've looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men, O Lord God. Look at your life through the lens of these verses. Meditate on the ways that God has brought you this far. Because you may surprise yourself as you reflect on just exactly how much God really has done in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for um, for your amazing grace, Lord. We've seen it in David's life. We've seen it as we look through the passage carefully of the grace that you have given to him. We've seen it in the life of Jonathan Newton, Lord. Allow us to see it in our lives. Allow us to be able to look through our lives and be able to recognize the grace that you have given to us, the ways in which you have directed our lives, maybe away from things that we never should have been a part of, maybe just from the good things that you've given to us. Lord, help us to have that humility to recognize the fact that who are we, oh Lord, that you are blessing us in this way. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.